Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, welcome uh, back to our Genesis class. It's good to see all of you. I'm excited about what's on tap for our evening. We have a little bit of a half surprise. Mark um, mentioned, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, what we were doing tonight, and he kind of half mentioned it last week. He is indeed gone, and I am indeed here, but I am actually going to be with you learning this week. Because we have as a special guest something we set up at the beginning of the semester. One of my uh, good friends and becoming one of my best friends is a guy named John Kerr, who is an Old Testament professor at Ozark. He teaches alongside me over there. He's been working there now for what a couple of years. It feels like probably yeah. Well, he went to Wheaton Graduate School up in Illinois, where he stuttered, studied under what stuttered? What does that mean? I guess it is a word. Hopefully, did you stutter there? I don't know. He studied there under uh, an Old Testament scholar named John Walton and quite a few others, but in particular John Walton, who is something of an expert on Genesis and is uh, quite a teacher on some of these things. So John has had a lot of, a lot of learning on this, and uh, he, he knows Hebrew, which is kind of awesome. I only know like the first few letters of the alphabet in Hebrew. Um, so he teaches our Genesis class at the college as well as our introductory History of Ancient Israel class that walks through the Old Testament. And as soon as we decided we were doing Genesis, I kind of thought, all right, if we could have a, an opportunity to get John out here, it's going to be great. So he's going to be talking to us tonight about the Noah story, kind of picking up where Mark left off and talking about some of the stranger elements that take place at the end of this story in particular. I'm very excited to have him. So let me pray if I could for our evening and then we'll embarrass him with some like, we'll greet him with some you know, cheers and woohoos or something. Father God, thanks for the opportunity for us to be here together tonight, and we pray that you would open up your word to us. We are here because we want to know you. We want to, uh, we want to know the truth about you. We want to know you personally. We want to know your will and your ways among us, and we know that the clearest revelation that you've given us is in, in the word, um, in the Bible, as it witnesses to Jesus, and as we take it one text at a time, and as we look at the different things that you've communicated and that you've revealed over time. And for many of us, we grew up with the Noah story. There's certain parts of it we love, certain parts of it we don't know what to do with, certain parts of it that are just bizarre. And as we talk about um, this, this, uh, this, this person, this family, this, these events, and um, these things from the book of Genesis tonight, we just pray that your blessing would be on the room. Help our minds and hearts to be sharp and focused and open to hearing what you have to say to us. Bless John as he brings um, and shares with us from the things that he studied. And I, I just am grateful that he loves, loves the Bible, loves the Word, loves you, and is, uh, is willing to come and share some things with us tonight. So bless us as we study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please welcome my friend John. <laughs> Man, he made me sound awesome. And I am not that awesome. And he's so eloquent, right? So <clears throat> I don't know if I'm, I'm that either, but here we are. So I am excited to be with you guys tonight. Um, I'm, you know, spent this morning in the classroom, and that's kind of my default. So um, I will tend a little bit more towards discussion, okay? So um, I don't know if you know the people sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you, but we'll have some time tonight to turn around and talk to the people next to you and um, get to know your neighbor. Uh, and I'd also like to encourage you, if you have any questions, um, feel free to just you know, raise your hand or shout them out or whatever. Um, I'd like this to kind of be a, yeah, more of a discussion than it is just a lecture. Um, I get bored by lectures, even my own. So um, anyway, I'd like you, in the spirit of that, to turn to someone next to you 
and just talk about what was your biggest aha moment so far in this class working through Genesis. Take a minute and do that. Well, I hope you met your neighbor at least. Some of you are like, yeah, biggest aha moment in Genesis. Okay, we're in Genesis. All right. Maybe you don't remember back that far. Uh, Tonight, we're picking up in really Genesis 9, um, kind of the end of Noah's story, right? So we saw creation, and then we had Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel, and then the descendants of Adam, right? Um, Descendants of Cain and Seth, and then we get down to Genesis chapter 6, right? There we have this um, really strange passage about sons of God, whatever those are, and daughters of men, whoever those are, and uh, doing things that we're not quite sure what they were doing. Anyway, and then the flood comes, right, after Noah builds this ark. Uh, End of Genesis chapter 8, we have Noah coming out from the ark, right, Um, sacrificing, uh, having this altar to God, and that's kind of where Mark ended, I think, last week, right? the end of Genesis chapter 8. So um, we're in Genesis chapter 9, and uh, I kind of want to just start in verse 1. I kind of enjoy just walking through the text, and so we'll do that quite a bit tonight. Kind of read it and then just talk a little bit about it. So here we go, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. Where have we heard this before? The answer is on your on your paper. If yeah, creation, right? Uh, Genesis chapter one. This is essentially God repeating the blessing uh, to that He had originally given to man. Genesis chapter one. Now He's repeating it in a way to Noah here, right? So that's your first blank. First, God's blessing comes to Noah. But it's not just Noah, right? God bless Noah and his sons. The difference between this and the blessing in chapter 1 is that in place of, um, in chapter 1 it was, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion, is what it says in chapter 1. But we don't really have that here, right? It just kind of ends after fill the earth. But then, it talks about how the fear of Noah, the fear of his sons, essentially the fear of man will rest on all mankind. So that has kind of, um, if we're trying to parallel these two ideas, Genesis 1, Genesis 9, the blessing seems to shift a little bit to be now the creatures will fear you. And so the fear of you and the dread of you, God says, will be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Some people think that this is the first time that it's blessed that they can eat meat. I don't know if that's um, for sure what it is, but it certainly seems like now God is saying all meat is considered um, okay. Interestingly enough, we don't actually have a differentiation here between clean and unclean. Um, So that will come later. Don't eat pigs, right? Um, They still believe that, right? And Islam, you're not allowed to eat pork. So 
You know, you talk about suffering for the kingdom, man, living in a Muslim country, no bacon for four years. It was awful. Um, anyway, it actually wasn't that bad. But They come out of the ark, right? God blesses them. He gives them these things. But then he says, um, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. So the idea here, right, is, first of all, um, if something's been dead for a while, you're not allowed to eat it, right? So if you just, like, come across a dead animal in the wilderness, you can't eat it. Second, don't eat roadkill, right? Uh, secondly, unless I guess you killed it, right? If, like, if you hit it with your chariot, I don't know. No, it didn't have chariots for sure, but um, if you hit it, right, then it's okay. Um, But basically, right, he's saying, don't eat something that you found dead. But then he goes on to talk about not eating the blood. This is going to be a big deal later on as we get to books like Leviticus, right, where God makes it very clear when when you kill animals for sacrifices and stuff, Um, some of that you can eat, some of that meat, but you always drain the blood. And he has this comment, right, that he puts in here. He says, uh, with its life, that is, its blood. For God, um, the life is in the blood. And, you know, we think about some of the laws um, that God gave to ancient Israel, This is one of them that we would say maybe this was kind of a ceremonial law, part of what they did. And yet it seems like when God gives this command, right, don't eat the blood, it's it's almost like he's saying you need to have a reverence for life. You need to recognize that you are not the one who gave that animal life, right? I am the one who gave that animal life. And so it's almost a, a way of when you drain the blood from an animal, right, is, is kind of standing back and saying, I respect the creator, right? I'm going to honor the creator and not eat the blood. Um, curiously enough, in the ancient Near East, I don't know if you've heard that phrase very much, but the ancient Near East would just be kind of the world of the Old Testament, right? So um, we have lots of documents from other cultures, other nations that surrounded Israel. And there's not really any other document we found from any other culture that has a similar command, don't eat the blood, right? So this seems to be kind of specific to Israel. um, And I think God actually ties it to um, kind of a, a moral issue that it's more about respecting him and honoring him in what they do by draining the blood. And so, um, he goes on, right, for your lifeblood. Not only will you uh, be, now be able to eat anything as long as you don't eat the blood, but also for your lifeblood, since the life is in the blood, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Um, the Hebrew there actually says uh, for a man, his brother, I will require it. Um, translations say fellow man. But I read that, I can't help thinking about Genesis chapter 4, right? Cain and Abel, Cain who took the life of his brother. And God is saying that 
If that happens, right? If you take the life of your brother or your fellow man, I will then require that of you. There seems to be um, a little bit in this sense of God saying, um, I, am, I am blessing you with the ability to carry out the punishment, okay? If you, you know, if an ox gores a man so that he dies, um, you have the power to kill that ox, right? To kind of enact justice. In fact, in the next verse, um, which is kind of like a little bit of poetry here, right? He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Again, where have we heard that before? Yeah, Genesis 1, right? Creation. God made man in his own image. And the reason, the reason that you don't kill someone, the reason that you respect life is because we're image bearers, right? We're the image bearers of God, very created in the very image of God. And so um, this, this verse here is essentially, I think, blessing, kind of the first blessing for people to be able to judge on their own, right? To not necessarily leave everything in the hands of God and say, we're not going to punish um, criminal mistakes or other things. We're not going to punish someone um, if they commit murder. But it's almost as if God is saying, now you have the power within your hands okay, to enact justice on the earth, right? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Any questions about what we're talking about here so far? Okay. And so, verse 7 then, and you, God says, we've just heard this, but now he's going to repeat it, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. This is an important thing for God. Right, um, especially as we um, as we move through the rest of Genesis, um, as, especially actually as we move to Genesis eleven, the Tower of Babel, uh, I think this command needs to hang front and center for us. What has God asked people to do? It's pretty simple, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And what's happening at Babel? Are these are these concerns that God has the primary concerns of the people? I don't think so. Um, and that's part of, I think, God's frustration with them, right? Is they're, they're not doing this. It's part of the reason why Babel is such a, a big deal to God. And so that kind of serves as the first section of Genesis chapter 9, kind of this blessing over Noah, over his sons, telling them to multiply and fill the earth. But next, God's covenant is established with Noah, his offspring, and all living creatures. Interestingly enough, it says, again, right, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, not just to Noah, but to all of them. And then he says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, and every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark, It is for every beast of the earth. God's establishing a covenant here with everybody, right? It's not just people who get in on this. It's all of the animals too, right? They're all a part of this covenant. 
Um, it's kind of interesting um, in the Hebrew Bible when you have when you have these moments where 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 God speaks and then it says and then God says right so you have God said and then there's no response and then it says and then God said uh, we, this happens at several times in Scripture and. Um, the typical thing, right, would be for, and God said, and then someone responded, right? And so Noah replied, wow, God, that's great. I really wanted a steak, thank you. I don't know. We expect him to say something, right? But he doesn't say anything. And so uh, these moments, um, it happens with Moses, right? When, uh, when Moses is up on the mountain with God, right, on Mount Sinai, and uh, you know, he's been up there for 40 days and nights. All this incredible, all of these incredible things have happened. He's got the Ten Commandments. And then um, God's like, hey, you got to go back down. Um, I mean, these people, so help me. And like he finishes that, right? And then he's, and, and then God said, and you get this idea that Moses is just like, um, um, hmm. I don't have anything to say to you, nothing in response to that. And I wonder if that's a little bit of what's going on here. Robert Alter, who is a, um, a Jewish Old Testament scholar, talks about that, this use of this convention of um, kind of blanking the response of someone where God speaks twice. You get this idea that maybe they're just there and, and not quite sure. He, he suggests that perhaps Noah is so like such a flood-battered sailor, right, <laughs> He's like, I don't know if I believe you that you're going to bless us. And so God says again, let me remind you, right? Uh, it's going to be okay. I'm going to bless you. I'm not going to do this again. And so God continues on then uh, in verses 8 through 11. Then in verse 12, we get again, and God said. Nothing from Noah, just and God said, right? He's um, blessing Noah and everyone who lives on the earth and giving them encouragement that essentially he's never going to do this again. Notice where we've been, though. Um, right, We were in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 2. Now the earth was formless and void, darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the what? The waters, right? The waters. And then God said, let there be light. And creation began, right? But Genesis 1 is framed as this life coming out of chaotic waters. The dry ground appears. People emerge. So... Genesis 6 and 7, the floods come and they fill the earth. So once again, here we are, this waters, chaotic waters that cover the earth. And then as the waters begin to recede, once again, we have the dry ground appearing and then people emerging. Um, I think Mark talked about this last week, right? This is an idea of recreation. I think there's, this is very intentional here. The writer of Genesis is wanting to see God is essentially creating again when he does this with Noah. Noah is also the means by which God will bring salvation to 
his people, right? He will, um, Noah built this ark, and then he was on the ark, and afterwards God brought him forth from the ark. And so he kind of is this, this figure through which God will redeem his people. In fact, at the beginning of Exodus, we read about Moses, right? This baby is born and Pharaoh is persecuting the Israelites who are living among him, right? And uh, he commands that all of the infants must be thrown into the Nile. Do you guys remember this story? Yes, maybe. Yes, okay. And uh, so Moses' mother tries to keep him hidden for a few months, but then he gets a little too loud and maybe a little too rambunctious, and so she's got to do something. And so she takes him and she puts him in what? A basket of reeds. What else could we call that basket of reeds? Anybody know? Yeah, an ark. It's actually the same Hebrew word used for the ark uh, that Noah was in and the ark that Moses was in. Now, they were different sizes, okay? A uh, little bit smaller for Moses, but it is the same word, right? And um, Actually, it talks about the ark being, in Genesis, being made with pitch, right? Moses, he's in this ark, and it um, talks about how his mother made it with pitch. And so I think there are some intentional similarities here, right, where God is using this kind of means of protection, but then bringing his deliverer, out through all of this. Now, lest we think for a second that it's about Noah or it's about Moses, right? We just need to step back and think, who is the one who's orchestrated these events to happen, right? These aren't stories about people, even though maybe sometimes we want them to be. These are stories about God. This is a whole book about God, right? And we learn so much about who God is and what God is doing through all of this. Anyway, So, um, God promises then to hang his bow in the sky. If you can kind of think about an archer's bow, right? Um, He's going to take his bow and hang it in the sky for everybody to see. Um, And it will be a sign. Never again will he do this. I think it's a pretty cool image. I mean, how many images do we still have, right, that we can look to as a confirmation of God's promises to his people? This is really cool. Um, In the ancient Near East, there actually is another flood story, and I think it might help us a little bit understand what's going on here if we we think about this. Um, Has anyone ever heard of um, the story called the Epic of Gilgamesh? Gilgamesh Epic? Maybe? No, maybe. Of course, yes. Of course we've heard about it. Um, So the Gilgamesh epic, right, is just this story, uh, kind of a myth of um, this guy, Gilgamesh. And in the story, there's, um, he's talking to this god um, whose name is, it's a long name, and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but Utnapishtim. Okay? Great name, isn't it? Um, And so, anyway, as he's talking to Utnapishtim, um, he's asking him some, like, you know, well, how did you get here? Uh, what happened? And so he begins to tell him this story. He goes, well, let me tell you a story. See, a long time ago, 
all of the gods, because they believe that there's not just one God, they believe there's a whole council of gods, right? All of the gods, they got angry. Other sources tell us that um, the humans were too loud, right? They'd like have parties and they talk and maybe they had little kids who like ran around screaming and I'm like, amen, I understand that. Um, anyway, something happened and the gods got mad that people were just too loud, okay? And so um, the head god named Enlil decrees, we're going to wipe out people, right? Quiet things down around here. And we're going to send a flood to do it. So he kind of decrees this in the council of the gods. Well, there's this one god. His name is E, E-A. That's how you spell his name, E. Um, and this, this god, E, hears the plan, right? And so he comes by night and whispers in a dream um, at not Pishtim's house and tells him, this is what's going to happen. You need to build an ark. You need to build a boat, basically, so that you can escape the flood. So, it, I mean, the, whole, the story goes on, talks about how he builds this big boat. And uh, anyway, the, um, the boat, you know, all these people join in making the boat, and then finally the boat's built. And then, you know, he gets word, okay, go into the boat and seal the door. So he goes in and he seals the door. And then all of a sudden it starts raining and raining and raining and raining. And he's just like, he's so sad and devastated because all his friends um, have, you know, been washed away. So he's weeping and he's crying. And the whole, the whole world gets washed away by this flood, except him, right? Because he's in the boat. And so after the flood, right, which only lasts for seven days in this story, after the flood, then all the waters kind of recede and he comes out from the boat. Well, here's the deal. They believed that the gods lived off of the food um, that people would offer in their sacrifices, right? And so Enlil, you know, he was, just, he was just mad about the noise and he wasn't thinking about food, right? What were you thinking? And now all of the gods are starving, right? And so Utnapishtim comes out from the boat and he, he lights his sacrifice on fire. And then it actually says in the epic of Gilgamesh, um, the gods swarmed around it like flies, <laughs> right? So they're like, we're starving. And they go over and they like swarm around the sacrifice. Well, then Enlil shows up and he's all ticked off. He's like, what's with this boat? Who let this guy in on the secret? And he's really mad, right? I was supposed to wipe out all the humans. And all the other gods are like, well, you're an idiot, okay? Because you forgot that we needed to eat. And E, this guy, is the only one who had the forethought to realize that we need food. And so E kind of steps up and speaks and says to him, you know, um, yeah, that was not the brightest idea you ever had, Enlil. But here's what you need to do. And I want to read you um, just this little, um, little passage from it. He says, You, O warrior, are the sage of the gods. How could you, unreasoning, have brought on the flood? Impose punishment on the sinner for his sin, on the transgressor for his transgression. Basically what he's saying is, don't punish everybody from now on. Instead, just punish people individually. Does that make sense? So if you can think of it, I'm really bad at drawing, so um, just hang with me here. Okay. So if you can imagine a big scale, right? Um, this kind of scale, and over here we've got evil, 
and over here we've got good. Basically, uh, what he's saying is, you know, when the scale tips, okay, for evil, you don't, you don't kill everybody, okay? Just when the scale tips towards evil, then, then you just punish, you know, just punish the individual people. But something interesting, um, something interesting happens, though, um, at the end of the story. Um, it talks about how um, one person then took, um, they, they made to kind of commemorate this moment, they made this necklace of flies. Yeah, and you're like, yes, that sounds beautiful. I would love that. Okay, but it's, it was a blue necklace, kind of like blue stone, um, of these flies, and people think that probably the wings of the flies cast sort of some sort of rainbow effect, okay? And um, this necklace of flies, okay, then became the symbol in the skies of a rainbow, okay? Now, we don't believe this, okay? But this is their story, okay? Uh, they believed that... The gods got angry and arbitrarily destroyed the world. And then the rainbow was actually the flies talking about how idiotic the move was to destroy the world in the first place. So the differences are are pretty significant when you kind of analyze what's the theology of what's going on in these stories and in a book like Genesis. Um, First of all, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to see, right? The actions of Enlil were just dumb, idiotic, okay? Um, everyone realized this was a bad idea because he just wasn't thinking. That's not how Genesis puts it, right? God does not lack foresight, right? This was planned. This was a very deliberate move, and he was very clear about speaking to Noah and saving Noah, right? But here's, here's the difference. And, and I actually think there, this scale actually might help us understand a little bit of why the flood came in the first place. Um, it seems as if the scale of humanity, at least at this stage, the evil kind of became... So great, you know, if you can imagine, like a little red button here, right? Um, and uh, when the evil becomes so great that it, like, hits the button, something has to be done. And in a way, it's kind of what happens, right, in Genesis, that, that the evil becomes so great that God, God has to act, right? He has to move. And yet... In the ancient Near East, in some of these other texts, right, the whole point is to let's throw away the scale um, because it does not promote justice, right? That's kind of the God's point. Let's get rid of this scale because it doesn't promote justice. And I think God says, I'm not going to work on this scale because if I did, no one would ever live, (laughs) right? It's not injustice like it is in other cultures. God says, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to require lifeblood for another person. And it does seem as if God's saying here now, um, you know, I'm going to look at sin a little bit more individually, maybe than I have in the past. But it, it's never 
um, kind of this decision, oh, well, I guess, I guess we just have to do away with this because it doesn't promote justice. Instead, it's this idea, if God was fully just, surely there would be none of us left. And so in his grace and in his goodness, he's responding to us. He's providing a way. He speaks to Noah, right? We see Noah's, um, we see God's grace actually all throughout Genesis, especially in the story of Noah. So then the rainbow is not a sign of the God's bad judgment. The rainbow instead for us is a sign of God's grace, right? God is graciously responding to us, even in the midst of our sin. Okay, I want to move then to this next section. Um, Chapter 9, verse 18, all right? So this is what it says. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "'Cursed be Canaan!' A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. All right, any questions? I think we're good, right? We can just move right on. When Michael... <laughs> when, yeah, this, this, is, this is the million-dollar question. When Michael, he's like, hey, would you like to speak for Genesis? Sure. What passage? Um, I don't know. I think maybe like Genesis 9 and 10. Oh, well, th- thank you for that, Michael, Mark. I appreciate you guys giving me this one. Um, I want you to turn to someone next to you. We're going we're gonna to talk about it, right? Um, as uncomfortable as this may be, right? We're in, we're in Genesis. Things get awkward pretty quickly. Uh, and so here we are, Genesis 9. We're going to talk about it. I want you to talk to someone next to you. What happened? What is going on here? Okay? So turn to someone next to you. Discuss. <laughs> you already talked about it. You figured it out? How? So up here, an act of indecency, maybe. Is something else going on? He went in viewing. Was it accidental? Was it not accidental? There, there's, um, there's, uh, I was talking about this this week with someone at, someone at Ozark, um, and uh, someone older than me. And he was saying, he's like, you know, when, when I was growing up, I, he grew up in the church, he's like, I read that story, and I remember when I was like eight or nine, um, we went to like the lake, and after we went swimming, 
we were like all changing. And I remember this moment when I was there and like my dad was changing and I like saw him changing and I thought, I'm like done. (laughs) I'm like seeing my father's nakedness. Oh no. Right? He's like feeling the judgment coming, washing over him from Genesis 9. It's like you were like the only child ever (laughs) to feel convicted. Okay, reading Genesis chapter 9. So is that what's going on here? Um, That's part of the question I think we need to answer. Okay, here's some thoughts to consider. We'll try to move through these kind of quickly. Um, First of all, why is Ham called the father of Canaan twice? Right? No, no, No one else is called the father of whoever. But two times... We're given the information that he is the father of Canaan first um, in verse 18 and then again in verse 22. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Here's something else. Um, it's not on your paper, but um, in Hebrew, there's a way to write. Um, their, their pronouns are actually attached to words. Hang with me for a second and you're like, Great, that's so interesting. Thank you for telling us. Um, but here's the deal, okay? So the, the pronoun here actually, if you just are looking at the letters, the pronoun is actually feminine on the word for tent, okay? So in verse um, 21, the, the, the consonants read, and lay uncovered in her tent. But people have, the, the way they pointed the text which means kind of the way that they later generations wanted you to read it um, was in his tent. And so maybe it's her tent. If it's her tent, whose tent would it be? His wife, we would assume, right? Um, but in reality, there's, there's nothing in the context. There's no feminine antecedent to this, okay? So maybe it's her tent as in his wife's tent, but... I don't know. I think probably the reality as it is, is that it's not. I asked Larry Pachauer, who's just an incredible Hebrew scholar. He's retiring this semester at Ozark. I you know, ran this by him, and he was like, no, nah, I don't think so. I think it's his tent. I'm like, I believe you. So um, I, I think probably, even though um, the consonant is a little bit different, because there's no antecedent, his tent is probably best. Okay. Next, drinking is linked to nakedness. Several times in scripture, um, some of you were like, yes, I have a crazy uncle, and I can confirm that. Um, But I I just want to look at a couple of these. Um, Let's see, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Well, there's a connection. Um, Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 21. Um, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. So some people think, well, maybe something else is going on with the nakedness. Well, I think there is a connection between being drunk and nakedness, at least in Scripture, um, if not also in um, in our own experiences. Here's the question. What do we mean, though, by the nakedness of his father? Um, in language, right, in any language, we have collocations or idioms we use, right? So a couple weeks ago, um, 
I was talking with a Kenyan student after class, and um, we, were, we were just talking about something, walking out of the class, and a guy who lives on his dorm floor walked in. He's like, hey, Joseph, what's up? And he's like, ha, ha, ha. And we walk on together, and he looks at me. He goes, what do I say when someone says this thing to me? <laughs> it's like, that's a good question. Um, not much. Hey. Like, just whatever you want, I guess. You just say it in response. But what's up does not mean what is up, right? That's not what we mean when we use it. We know what we mean. And so if someone says that to us, we can respond appropriately. This is just the way language works, right? So sometimes um, there's things like this in the biblical languages as well. And part of our job is to figure out what, what do these phrases mean? Is that part of what's going on here? Okay, so let's look at this phrase, the nakedness of his father. These are all the places where that phrase occurs in Scripture. Um, it occurs in the next verse. But then it occurs in Leviticus um, here's what actually what I want you to do um, with the people next to you. Look these up, 18, 7 through 8, Leviticus 20, verse 11, and Ezekiel 22, verse 10. And I want you to answer the question, what is the nakedness of the Father? Okay? Sure. It's ESV on one side and Hebrew on the other. So, okay. Yes. Yeah, that's a little confusing. I'm just trying to trip you out. So, yeah. So read them aloud to each other in your groups and and try to answer that question. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, The question was, was it because before, right, before sin entered the world, they were naked. So is it something dishonorable that's happening here? I think for sure something dishonorable is happening. Um, So one theory is, right, that this is, He's dishonoring his father by seeing his nakedness. Um, in these verses you looked up, though, what is the nakedness of the father? Anybody? Leviticus talks about it. <laughs> We're not talking about it. Well, give me, which is, it says, you know, the nakedness of the father, which is the nakedness of who? The mother, right? Yeah, see, thank you, Michael and Mark, for this for this topic. So um, Leviticus seems to say the nakedness, do not um, uncover the nakedness of your mother because this is the nakedness of your father. So there's a sense in which the nakedness of your father is actually your mother's glory and honor and you are not to dishonor that. In these passages, it's talking about maybe sleeping with your stepmother or something like that. Um, Don't do that. Right, um, And so, is that what this means? Some people think um, that's, that's actually what's happening. They think that maybe what's going on here is that Ham came in and had relations with his mother and thus uncovered the nakedness of his father. This wouldn't be unprecedented, Okay, um, it would be gross, yes, but okay, hang with me. Um, later on in Genesis, right, um, we have the story of Jacob and all of his sons, right? Well, who's Jacob's favorite wife? Rachel, right? And she has then, um, Rachel has her maidservant who becomes 
Jacob's wife. And Leah, who had weak eyes, right? She's not the favorite. And she had her maidservant. So Jacob has four wives, essentially, right? Number one is Rachel. Well, Rachel dies, right? She dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And then in Genesis 35, 22, we have this just random verse out of nowhere that says, and Reuben went and slept with his stepmother, okay? He slept with the wife, or um, he slept with his father's wife with Rachel's maidservant, okay? Now, who's Reuben? He's the oldest son of Leah, the not favorite, okay? And I think what he's doing is not so much motivated by sexual desire as much as it is an attempt to, to make his mother the favorite wife now by defiling Rachel's concubine. It's a power play, I think. And in the end, Reuben pays for it. Uh, end of Genesis. We actually don't hear anything about it in the moment, but by the end of Genesis, when Jacob's blessing his sons, right? Reuben should get the biggest blessing. Instead, he gets a curse because he slept with his father's wife. Um, anyway, we all have other places in Scripture where people do sleep with their father's wife in order to shame them. I'm thinking of um, Absalom sleeping with David's concubines on the roof. Um, anyway, there's other places we could go to in Scripture. So this, this is actually a thing. If that's what happened here, then he, Ham is essentially trying to usurp the authority of everybody else living okay, by kind of positioning himself over them. Now, because we need to move along quickly, what is, um, well, actually, let me say this one more thing. There's one more thing people say is that um, some have suggested that Canaan, then, is the offspring of that union. He's the child that gets born from it. So that's why you have Ham, the father of Canaan. This is similar to Genesis 19, since we're talking about awkward texts, we'll go there. Uh, Genesis 19, after the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right, Lot's two daughters, um, they've, they're like, there's no men for us, we're going to die. Um, and so they actually get their father drunk, and then they have relations with him, and they both get pregnant by their own father. And so if that's what's going on here, then this would be a parallel, okay, of drunkenness, unlawful sexual union, and then children born from that. Here's the problem that I have. I mean, part of it's like, well, that's really gross, but maybe. Here's the problem I have with that. In all of these other places, what verb is used? Does it say, um, you shall not, like in Leviticus, what does it say? You shall not what? Your father's nakedness. Anybody know? Uncover, right? You shall not uncover your father's nakedness. What does it say here? It says he saw his father's nakedness. Now, we don't have time to walk through all of these, but if you start working through some of these, there's only one in this list that I think is actually sexual. I think all of the rest of these verses you see right there next to Saul, the nakedness, I think all of these have to deal with an act of public shaming. So God later will talk about Israel, right? and how she had many lovers, and how he's going to punish her. And he says, and so I will uncover you so that the nations might see your nakedness 
and you might be disgraced. Okay, I don't think he's talking about anything sexual. I think he's actually saying letting people see your nakedness is an act of a very dishonorable thing, a very, very, very intensely shameful thing. So there could be a few different things going on. Um, some, just another theory that I actually don't think has much weight. Really, there's four main theories, right? He had relations with his mother. Um, the second one is that he had relations with his father, Um, I think that one really doesn't have any support because the nakedness of the father seems to be the mother. Another one is that somehow he castrated his father. I don't think that has any support, um, but several people in church history held that. And so then we have this fourth one. Maybe it was just an act of actually seeing. Here's the other piece we have to wrestle with. Whatever happened in verse 22 happened again or, or didn't happen in verse 23, right? Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it both on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Right? Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So to argue then that here we're talking about, that still we're talking about sexual relations with their mother, I just don't think that fits in this verse. I think here the most natural reading seems to be actually what they're seeing. Okay, So, perhaps then, Ham disgraced his father, this is your blank, disgraced his father by intentionally dishonoring him. When Noah wakes up, he knows what Ham did to him. This action was, um, maybe to us, seems like not that big of a deal, but this is not Ham you know, a little kid walking on on his dad as he steps out of the shower, okay? Um, Ham was old enough to know what was going on. His father was drunk. Probably he knew that he was drunk, and he watched him even go into the tent, okay? I don't think there's an innocent action here. Notice also what Ham does. As soon as he sees it, he goes outside and he tells his brothers, no matter how you want to interpret this, this is a power play, right? If I tell my brothers, now I'll have some sort of power or authority. Either my father will be shamed, and I'm the one who did it, so I look cool, um, or somehow I've got something to hold against my father. Whatever way you play it, Ham is more interested in his own honor and his, his own self than he is in his father's honor, okay? This act is so significant, um, and I think probably it's just a cultural thing where we don't actually realize how weighty or how big of a deal this would have been, but it's so significant that then he curses not Ham, but who? His son, right? He curses Canaan. Um, I think maybe that is part of the reason why we have two times Ham, the father of Canaan, because um, now we're getting the curse not for Ham, but for even for his son. Um, Gary Zustiak at Ozark um, says maybe this is what God is talking about when he says, you know, I'll visit the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. Maybe a little bit of that 
is what's going on here. Um, anyway, at the end of the day, then, I think this is um, a story about a son who acted in an incredibly disgraceful way. I actually don't think there was anything sexual going on, but um, there are those who think that's what ha- was happening. Um, regardless of what you interpret this to mean, it was very dishonorable, right? He knew he shouldn't have done it. He bragged about doing it. And thus, he is kind of disinherited and even cursed. Questions? Yes, why in the world is this in our Bibles? Yeah. I think there is, and I think if we have, have time, I think we will have time to get there on the back side. I want to talk a little bit about why I think this story is there. Um, and, and what part it plays. That's a great question, though. Yes? My humble opinion. I think what I think of this. I think that what he did, he went in, accidentally, his father came out, and he was mocking him through his brother. And God hates him because he dishonored his father. It's huge. If you remember when David came back, Yeah. No, well, a couple of things here. Number one, right, um, biblical scholars, we have to stay employed, right? So we have to come up with creative ideas, right, for possible interpretations. Um, um, But part of the reason I wanted to do this is because I I want you to know, you know, what else could you hear? You know, maybe in your study Bible, you've got some notes. Um, I don't know what resources you use to study. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of go through this exercise to say, I think actually we can know by just studying the text, okay? As we look at the text of Scripture, I think we can see what does see the nakedness mean, okay? If we're going to try to do our homework and figure out, did this mean something for them? I think at the end of the day, we have to realize it's, it's associated with disgrace and dishonor, right? More than it is associated with sexual activity. So anyway... As we move on, then, um, the blessings and the curse, um, verses 25 through 27. 26, we actually get a really incredible moment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. What we probably have here is a, actually a messianic prophecy um, that God promises to be with Shem, So we could either say that God will dwell in the tents of Shem, verse 27. In other words, the divine presence will be among his people. Or it could be saying that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. And Shem is the line through which the Messiah will come. So what does it mean for Japheth? Well, the Gentiles will come from Japheth. And so there could be a sense in which it's saying 
the Gentiles will in the end be blessed through the line of Shem. And so then we arrive at Genesis chapter 10 um, after the story of Noah. And this list probably... um, I mean, obviously written from a later perspective, we're kind of standing at the end and going backwards, right? It gives us a collection of, anyone know how many descendants are listed in chapter 10? You don't have to count them. It'll take you a while. But. 70. 70 descendants are listed um, Japheth has 14, Ham has 30, Shem has 26. This isn't, um, and I don't think it even presents itself as a comprehensive list of every possible descendant from every one of these people, um, but I think it is a list of all of these major peoples that the people would have known and how they descended from Noah. Um, I think that's actually why we have 70. It isn't that there are only 70 people. I think it's this number of completion, of uh, full filling out of the details. Okay, um, And here it works in kind of in a backwards order. First we start with Japheth and his descendants, then Ham and his descendants, and then Shem and his descendants. Um, the rest of Shem's descendants will actually be listed after Babel at the beginning of chapter 11, and that will take us all the way down to Abram or Abraham. An interesting piece in this is that um, Eber, E-B-E-R, um, talked about in verse 24, Eber is the father of the people that will later become known as, anybody? The Hebrews. So the Hebrew people is what the Israelites are commonly referred to in the Old Testament, and they take their name from this guy right here, Eber. Here's what I think is an important thing for us to see in Genesis chapter 10. Look at that map. Okay? That map, it's on the back side of your paper. I know you, it's not in color for you, Um, but you can see all of those names there. These are all of the descendants listed. Looking looking at that map, this is Israel's world, okay? This is everybody that surrounds them, everybody that they know. This is even their enemies, okay? And so your blank there um, at the bottom of the previous page, all of the nations, even the pagan ones, are descended by an act of God's grace. And we may wonder, you know, why is something like Genesis 10 in our Bibles? Um, I think it's because it helps us see a picture that God is not just the God of Israel, right? God is the God of the entire world. And the only hope that the world has um, to survive, to live, to thrive is because God, in an act of grace, saved them, kept them, even through the flood. So, no matter what these other leaders of these other countries will do, how they'll raise their heads and set themselves up and set themselves against God's people, 
Passages like Genesis 11, or sorry, Genesis 10, remind us that God is a God of the nations. It is only by him, the sovereign Lord, that they even exist. Okay. And so then, reflections on Genesis 9 and 10. First of all, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, it says in 1 Corinthians 10.6. And I think, getting back to your question, I think there's a lot of similarities between Adam and Noah. Why don't you take three or four minutes and just see how far you can get working. Maybe you can work together in groups, divide some of these up. Um, See if you can fill in some of these blanks, okay? What are the parallels between Adam and Noah? Okay? I'll give you the first one. Creation from a watery chaos or a water chaos. And then Noah, recreation from a watery chaos. We already talked about that. Okay? So in your small groups, why don't you work through some of that? You might not have finished, but that's okay. Let's go ahead and talk through some of these. So first one, creation from a watery chaos, recreation from a watery chaos. How about the next one? Associated with the yeah, image of God on both of those, right? How about the next one? Walked with God. Both Adam and Noah seem to do that. Ruled the animals. Animals is what I have. Ruled the animals, both Adam um, by naming them, right? And Noah, essentially by being given authority over them, right? How about the next one? Commissioned by... Is that as far as we got? Commissioned by God, right? Um, and then Noah also commissioned by God. Okay, but here's where, here's where things, I think, get a little more interesting for us as we try to think about why this story here, okay? Adam, after the fall, worked the ground. Noah also, 9 verse 20, worked the ground. Adam sinned through, what did he do? Ate, right? He sinned through eating. Noah, you know, whether or not we say it was Noah himself who sinned, maybe he didn't realize how strong those grapes were. I don't know. Uh, Accidentally got drunk. I don't know. But regardless, there was a sin, but it came as a result of drinking. Right? The sin results in shameful behavior would work if you don't want to write nakedness, which is what I have. But behavior would be be just fine, right? Um, But nakedness, both Adam realizes he is naked, Noah uncovers himself in the tent and is naked. Sin results in Knowing is what I had. Yeah. He knew that he was naked. When Noah woke, he knew what his son had done to him. 
So sin results in knowing. And then, chapter 3, verse 21, nakedness covered by another. God makes the garments. And then for also Noah, nakedness covered by another. And then, the last one there, three named sons, good, one of which sinned grievously, and also for Noah, three named sons, one of which sinned grievously. We get to, we get to the end of Genesis 1, and there's this great hope, isn't there? God is going to do something incredible. What a mandate that he's given to mankind. Genesis chapter 2, right? This incredible story of the creation of woman, right? And she bring, he brings her to Adam. Wow, this incredible picture. Such hope for the future. And then Genesis chapter 3, right? The sin in the garden. And everything changes. And that sin continues its course in uh, Cain and Abel. And it continues its course in the generations that follow and continues its course But when we get to Genesis chapter 6. And finally God says, enough. Enough. Noah, build me an ark. I'm going to flood the world. And he begins again through him. We get the flood then, this recreation of sorts. Chapter 9, things are looking good. He blesses Noah. Same blessing that was given to Adam. This man, this one man and his children are going to populate the earth. God's agenda, now it's not exactly the same agenda as Genesis 1, but um, in a way God has chosen these people, and is wanting to use them for his glory. And we get past the hanging of the bow in the sky, and what happens? Sin. It's back. Just when we thought everything was fixed and better, we're reminded it's not. Sin's back. We were hoping Noah would be a better Adam but he wasn't. And so the question that I think is left hanging over Genesis chapter 9 is what what are we going to do, right? There's this problem that the flood was supposed to solve and it didn't take care of it. Genesis chapter 11, things get even worse, right? And so what we have in Genesis 12 is God stepping in in a pretty incredibly significant way and calling one man, just one man, in the midst of his faults and in the midst of his sin, by his own grace, choosing one man to fulfill his purposes. And yet, even as we move through the story of Israel, we're still left with this question. We're still left, in, we're still left searching for a better Adam. Right? Waiting. When will the better Adam come? Will this ever be fixed? Will the sin problem ever go away? And I think what we see again and again throughout the Old Testament, and this is your last blank here, God is a God of grace. God is a God of grace. And over and over again, even in the midst of the sin, 
and the disobedience of his people, he showers his grace on them and gives them another chance. And ultimately, by the time we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus, the perfect Adam, right? Who, um, in a way none of us ever expected, takes care of the sin problem. And uh, we find ourselves now in unity with the Father because of what Jesus has done. Questions? Yeah. I'm not sure I know what your exact question is, but so are you saying has um, is is God more patient now or? So the short answer is, yes, it's because of Jesus. The long answer is, Michael and Mark next week are going to answer all of your questions, okay? Um, so I, I actually hate to, to cut it off, but we're out of time. Um, but next week, Mar- uh, Michael said, is primarily going to be question and answer. So, I mean, I'm serious. Bring these questions, and these are great questions to talk about and reflect on, and what does this mean for us, and how do we see ourselves in light of Jesus? I'm so grateful for Michael and for Mark and their heart to help guide this church through such a foundational text as this. Let me pray for you, and thank you so much for your kindness and graciousness, um, and bless you. Lord, I just thank you for this group, and I thank you for your word, um, for these words we have in Genesis. I pray, Lord, that they, um, that as we read them, as we meditate on them, Lord, that they might be for us words that speak to um, your greatness, your goodness, your grace, and that we can find ourselves living in worship of you um, because of this word that you have given to us. Thank you uh, for all of these gathered here tonight, and I pray your blessing on them as they leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.